problem. But a modern one. What are you going to do when you're born? I'm going to start it off with a wild orgy. You'll live magnificently. I expect to live two days. Why so short? I'll be worn out. How much do you love WCBN? Uh, about this much. That's not very much. Well, maybe this much. That's not very much either. I love WCBN this much. Whoa. Whoa. How much? This much. I love WCBN so much that I wrote a testimonial. A testimonial? Yeah. What the heck for, man? What for? Well, WCBN just got permission from the FCC to go from 200 watts to 3,000 watts. And now they need our help convince the man... To throw them some more cash. To make it happen. So, if you really love WCBN, prove it by writing a testimony. Send it to testimonials at wcbn.org. Or leave a voicemail at 734-418-8420. Or snail mail it to WCBN, 530 Student Activities Building, Ann Arbor, 48109. Hetzel, you've got living writers today on the program. I'm so pleased to have Elizabeth Kostova here. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's great. It's great to see you. Um, Elizabeth, you're on tour right now with your latest, your second novel, The Swan Thieves. And so you're you're coming into town and you're actually reading this evening at Nicola's Books um, at 7 p.m. That's right. Yes. So, so that's how it. So so everybody, if you're listening, you can turn the car towards Nicola's or um, get some get a bite to eat and then head over there. 7 p.m. Nicola's Books in Westgate Mall. Um, Elizabeth, before we go any further, I'll read your short bio from the back of the book and then we'll fill in some pieces. OK, that sounds great. Elizabeth Kostova. Graduated from Yale and holds an MFA from the University of Michigan, where she won the Hopwood Award for the novel in progress. Well, I guess we could start there, because that novel in progress was the historian, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was, that turns in, that, that ha- was a big book. Well, it was, I was really um, so grateful to be at the University of Michigan while I was finishing it, and, and to have the time and the huge encouragement and inspiration that the MFA program um, offers to writers. It was the first time that I had ever had time to focus just on writing work and on teaching, of course, too. But it was um, it was the first time I'd had that much time to really write and, and wrestle with the book after eight years of working on it. So I, I can only imagine that if I hadn't come here with that manuscript, it would have taken another 10 years. And eight years. And so when, when I was reading up on you, Elizabeth, you, I think you moved from Philadelphia, where you were teaching writing there and working in the summers on the book. Is that? Is um, that yes. And in, in fact, I worked on it year round, but I often had very little time to put into it. So sometimes I would have 10 or 20 minutes in a day, a busy day of teaching and other responsibilities. So it really was, um, it was heavenly coming here to the MFA program and being able to focus on it and to focus on the craft of writing. 
And so literally you say 10 or 20 minutes well, and, and you would be the- able to actually, cause sometimes I think it takes me that long to like, like circle the table. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, but I, I found I was so busy in those years that I really, I learned to use any 10 or 20 minutes I had. I mean, it was a little bit, this is this is kind of maybe a silly sounding analogy, but it was a little bit like carrying knitting around. You know, I could knit the body of the sweater if I kept it in my bag with me all the time. But finishing a sweater is much more complicated and putting on the sleeves and all those things. So, oh, right, and buttons. That, and, and buttons and <laughs> collars. And that, that really took an MFA program. <laughs> but I did find that if I used every 10 or 20 minutes that I could scrape out of my very busy day during those years, um, I could get something done. And sometimes what you get done, as you know, what you get done in 20 minutes is very different from what you get done if you have two or three hours to write. But sometimes, for example, you can correct a paragraph you wrote the day before. You can do a little tiny bit of research in some book you're reading or looking through. Um, you can work on your outline. You can. There, there are little things you can do to move move a book along every single day. But yes, it was it was an incredible gift to be able to come here and focus. Mm-hmm. And the craft of writing. What did you take? Did were there classes here? Because it's it's the time and the the fellowship, um, both camaraderie and and funding. Um, that's so important. It sounds like in your experience, Elizabeth. Ab- absolutely, and, and also the wonderful faculty and the the courses I took, the workshops and literature classes. Um, I, I had. I mean, I, it would take me a long time to oh, describe all those classes, but <laughs> yeah. I had fantastic workshops um, with Nicholas Del Banco and Eileen yes. Pollock and yeah. Peter Ho Davies and others. And I also had a wonderful literature class with Charles Baxter before he left. Yes, friend um, of the show. All of these people, <laughs> fantastic thing. And and I also studied history with John, Doctor John Fine here, who is a uh, world renowned um, historian of the medieval Balkans. And that was a great honor for me, and I learned a great deal from it. I'm, I'm very, very grateful to him, too. So this was, I mean, it was, and, and having also a, a fantastic graduate library right here for someone working on a historical novel, that was that was immensely helpful too to have access to those kinds of sources. I'm not sure if this is 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 a a, a myth or not, um, Elizabeth. But um, it's said on Wikipedia that <laughs> I think, or was it in some other article, um, that you you were hiking in the Appalachian Mountains with your husband when you suddenly had this idea of what if? Because um, your father used to tell you these these stories of Dracula, and we have to get to the swan thieves soon. Um, so I have a transition, actually. <laughs> but um, but was that true? Were you hiking and you suddenly thought, ha, you know, this is this is a way to tell. This is a story I want to tell and a way to tell it. Well, you, you can't believe everything you read on Wikipedia, as you know. Oh. <laughs> but in this case, it's true. <laughs> it's embarrassingly true. I had the idea for the historian and kind of a, a moment, a flash. Um, well, uh, on top of a mountain. I mean, you really can't get more cliche than that. But it, it did happen. And I think it, that was partly because um, the Balkans are mountains. Balkan means mountain in, in old Turkish form. And um, and I think hiking and being up in mountains always reminds me of being in Eastern Europe when I was younger. So, um Yes, embarrassingly, that did exactly happen, <laughs> exactly as Wikipedia reports, I'm sure. <laughs> it could have been in one of the other articles, actually, to be fair. Um, but so so was there a moment, um, it seems like, what, have you, now, was there a, a, a similar moment for your latest, your second novel, um, not eight years, not ten years in the making, the the Swan Thieves. Um, was there a, a similar moment of were you out hiking again, Elizabeth? Is that your thing? <laughs> I wish hiking did that more often, but it actually no. There with the Swan Thieves, I had no kind of dramatic moment of of um, genesis for this book. I really. I had wanted for a long time to write a book about a painter and about paintings. Because, um, why? Well, I've, I've always loved art history, and I studied a lot of art history in college, and I've remained a, a, an enthusiastic spectator of paintings. 
and although I don't paint myself. And I knew that I wanted someday to write a novel about painters and painting and um, something to do with art history. So this book grew up gradually out of that idea. And and what was it? What is it about painting that you think still intrigues you and keeps you going to either the museums or uh, I don't know the the small galleries or? Well, I I love the visual. I love color, and I love um, I love the natural world. And of course, nineteenth century painting was very much concerned in in well, in part concerned with reproducing the natural world in different ways, but. Um, I also, I think I have a secret envy of painters as a, as a writer. I think, and and you'll understand this as a writer, and I think many writers would say some form of this, that when you're a writer, you have a kind of endless tape loop of, of words in your head. You, whatever you see or you experience, you write about in some way, either on the page or in your brain. And there's, there's a kind of uh, disconnect there's a kind of there's a way in which experience is channeled sort of secondhand into writing, whereas I think painters experience the world, especially painter, especially painters who are somehow representational painters, experience the world in this very visceral, direct way. So it fascinates me that there are people who look at a scene and they see and experience color so directly, or form, shape, line, texture. And I think I have a sort of secret envy of that. Probably most painters would argue, no, then we reinterpret everything and we we use um, artificial media to express it. And it's no different. It's not very different from writing. But but for me, it does it does seem like this wonderfully direct way of experiencing the world. And one one thing I found curiously when I was working on the Swan Thieves, and this has lasted for me, I see the vis- the world in a different way. I see it more visually because of working on this book. And I found my, I was sort of I found myself kind of training myself to look around more observantly, to to walk into a room or a grove of trees and see directly, immediately, without words, color and form. And light. And, and light, shadow. very much light. And especially since I was studying the Impressionist, light was a big part of that. And it has changed the way I look at, at the world. And I don't think that I'm so much closer to understanding what it's like to be a painter, but I spend a lot of time trying to imagine that. Yes, and and the research as well. So the imagination of of how did this character Robert Oliver come to you? I knew, how did you choose him as your one of your painters? I knew that I wanted to to use. Um, I wanted to have a contemporary figure who is a painter, and I wanted um, I wanted to do also the literary experiment to try the experiment of having one central figure in in a book who doesn't really speak for himself and who's who kind of rises up three-dimensionally out of the book through other people's voices. And I felt that this person, Robert Oliver developed in my mind in that way, that he would be this person who is very striking in himself, but not committed to expressing that to other people, but very but charismatic for other people. So that a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to understand him, explain him, describe him, although he doesn't feel the need to do that for himself. And and why was it important? Uh, like because um, I I noticed that and I was wondering why you made that choice or if it just felt like it was the way it had to be. Um because why did you want other people to describe him, or is it something about painters that you think that that they are wordless in some way that we writers are um, hobbled with words, <laughs> and so it made sense he didn't speak that you know refused to speak or tell his story. I think a little of all of those things. I mean, many painters, of course, are, are highly articulate and have left us great bodies of letters or journals or yeah. writings about art. But I think I was picturing someone who was so kind of obsessively, directly in touch with the sensual world that he would eschew words, basically, and 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 abandon speech, and or deny the power of speech at least, and and the power of writing. And he, 
he became a focus. I mean, he's sort of a, I think he's sort of a super painter. <laughs> and the people around him feel that too. <laughs> well, well, when we come back, we'll take a short break, Elizabeth, and, and then maybe you'll read us a, a piece of the story. That would be wonderful. Um, today in the studio, Elizabeth Kostova, um, her latest, her second novel, The Swan Thieves. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us today, Elizabeth Kostova and her book, The Swan Thieves. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Brian Delaney um, in the engineering booth. And Elizabeth, we've been hearing music from the, the French Impressionist musicians, right? That's been our... We didn't have the one song that I wish we did have um, the by, by Franck. Um, but would uh, the, you mention it? because um, it's The Franck Violin Sonata. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a beautiful piece. And it's a piece that, it's a piece that um, the narrator of my new novel, The Swan Thieves, is obsessed with. And he, he carries it around with him. He plays it in his car. And I chose that piece partly because it, it's, if, it's a wonderful piece to listen to with all the lights out. Because it's just, uh, it's a very... Um, emotional, rich, deep piece without being histrionic in any way. It's just a wonderful sweep of emotion. And this character, at least at the beginning of the book, has his emotional life very well ordered and under control. Even though he's a psychiatrist. Well, probably, or probably maybe because. partly because he is. And, and, um, and he is a person with a lot of depth of feeling and a lot of compassion for other people. But this Frank violin sonata is one of his outlets, I think. So if only we had that, but go and get it if you can. And, and listen to and, it in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> or while you're reading the book. Or while you're reading the book, yeah. Um, Elizabeth, will you tell us a, a little bit about the Swan Thieves, and then maybe we can hear a bit. Well, it's the story of Andrew Marlowe, this psychiatrist in Washington, D.C. in 1999. He's 52 when the book opens, and he has a a great dedication to his profession, and he's also an avid and talented amateur painter. And one day, a friend of his, also a psychiatrist, gives him the case of his career. And the case of his career is Robert Oliver, a, a really a genius painter, a, a dedicated, obsessed um, career, a successful career painter and painting instructor who has just been arrested for attempting to assault a 19th century canvas in the National Gallery of Art in Washington. With a knife. With a knife. With a knife. Security is much tighter there these days. <laughs> but this this was a while ago. 99. 99. It's changed. And um, Andrew Marlowe sets about trying to help Robert Oliver, who's agitated, depressed, but also silent. He refuses to speak. 
And because of that, Marlowe finds himself going beyond the bounds of his own profession and sometimes his own ethical rules for his life, sometimes his own instincts to try to find out who Robert Oliver is. And he, in the process, he begins interviewing the women Robert Oliver's been very close to and hearing about Robert Oliver through their stories. And also, he becomes intrigued with a package of old letters Robert Oliver keeps with him all the time. And those letters lead him, lead Marlowe, as they have Robert, into a tragedy that is part, is at the heart of the rise of French Impressionist painting. So part of the book is set in our era in the United States and often in museums in big cities and, um, and in Marlowe's life. And part of it is set from very early on in the book in France of the 1870s and 1880s. And it, it traces lives that have become as important to Robert Oliver as his own. And I'd love to read you just um, the very beginning of Chapter 3, which is when Marlowe first meets Robert Oliver. And I was very inspired in this book by, um, influenced by the work of Joseph Conrad, and particularly Lord Jim. And um, Marlowe says at the beginning of the book that he has renamed everybody in the book, and we learn later that Lord Jim is one of his favorite books. So this is why he gives himself this name, the observer of of uh, a vivid man. So um, you'll hear a big piece of theft here. <laughs> or a tribute. <coughs> tribute. Chapter 3, Marlowe. He stood by the window of his new room, looking out of it, hands dangling at his sides. He turned as I came in. My new patient was an inch or two over six feet, powerfully built, and when he faced you head on, he stooped a little, like a charging bull. His arms and shoulders were full of barely restrained strength, his expression dogged, self-assertive. His skin was lined, tanned, his hair was almost black and very thick, touched with silver, breaking in waves off his head, and it stood out farther on one side than the other, as if he rumpled it often. He was dressed in baggy pants of olive corduroy, a yellow cotton shirt, and a corduroy jacket with patches on the elbows. He wore heavy brown leather shoes. Robert's clothes were stained with oil paint, smudges of alizarin, cerulean, yellow ochre, colors vivid against that determined drabness. He had paint under his fingernails. He stood restlessly, shifting from foot to foot or crossing his arms, exposing the elbow patches. Two different women later told me that Robert Oliver was the most graceful man they had ever met, which makes me wonder what women notice that I don't. On the windowsill behind him lay a packet of fragile-looking papers, I thought these must be the old letters John Garcia had referred to. As I came toward him, Robert glanced directly at me. This was not the last time I was to feel that we were in the ring together, and his eyes were momentarily bright and expressive, a deep gold green, and rather bloodshot. Then his face closed angrily. He turned his head away. I introduced myself and offered my hand. How are you feeling today, Mr. Oliver? Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, is this, um, do you think this is a curiosity of yours uh, with the, the, the history? Because you, you named like art history as a passion of yours. And, and, and of course, the historian, <laughs> like this, this element, this historical element. Um, do you foresee that it's something like a way that your writer's mind is, is working to span centuries and to, to always include how the past is, is somehow pressing in on the present or that is something that interests me hugely and i think it is a way of thinking because when i've i as long as i can remember i've had a sense of history and everything the, the history in each of us in our in our historical cultural heritages um, I see what do you mean wherever. by that exactly? What, well, what is... well, I think each of us is a living, walking piece of history. We bear in us everything that our our particular ancestors um, 
were and did, and and we also are part of a larger human history. So even DNA memory or something that the the body knows from places well, like I, maybe we weren't even. Well, I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I. I don't think I think directly about that. Oh, yeah, I that's don't know going very too much far. About it. I don't. I don't know much about that that theory, honestly. But but I think that each of us um, encapsulates those things somehow, and I also see all around us in every piece of architecture and every material and all of material culture. I mean, everything to me feels connected with some kind of some kind of legacy, some kind of heritage, some kind of pattern, some kind of, um, you know, some kind of historical symbolism. And that that's just sort of a way of thinking. And I'm not very in, much interested in writing the kind of historical novel in which you find yourself in the first page in 1776 and you stay there and um, for the whole book and you you visit that world completely. And that is that is brilliantly done um, often, and I admire writers who, who can do that well. But what really interests me is the way we, as, as modern people, are influenced by history in its many, many, many forms and what it means to us, why we struggle with it, why we forget it, why we remember it, why it it haunts us. Those are the things that, I find interesting that interaction between past and present. Yes, because for your your character Robert that you were just reading us a, um, the the section about Elizabeth, he's um, almost more convinced or um, living with in a way this woman who's been gone for for years. She um, would you say her name Beatrice? Like would you say it in the um, French pronunciation? Yes, yeah, she's her her name is Beatrice de Clerval, okay. and she's a French a French impressionist painter, younger than the the a little bit younger than the original impressionist painters and the original six, and um, but aware of their work, influenced by them, admiring them, and she is. As you say, she becomes more real to Robert Oliver, although she's been dead for um, 80 or 90 years. She becomes more real to him than even the people around him. I mean, he's in a, in a sense, he's a case of someone driven, literally driven mad by history. And and it's an obsession, and it's almost as if he's. So it's love too. Does it begin as love? I don't. I don't know. It's very. It's very interesting because there's many different pairings also throughout the novel. Um, some that parallel each other. Um, I don't, yeah. Do novel, you want to talk about obsession? Well, it's, uh, obsession. <laughs> love. <laughs> the floor no. is yours. <laughs> um, those are big topics. the The novel does is about obsession, and it does contain it. Well, it has six main characters. And it contains um, several love stories, and some of them span a tremendous amount of time, either either an age gap between people, living people, or the or it's the in Robert Oliver's case, the love of the living for the dead in a very strange way. And I won't give away too much of that because that that's um, at the heart of the story. But I I wanted to convey somehow the way art and for me painting in particular transports us into another time and i mean i think one of the extraordinary things about looking at a painting especially a painting that has been around for a while is that it's like looking into a window looking through a window into history whatever the subject matter is it's you you look at a painting and you see uh, perhaps the work of a perhaps long dead hand on the canvas, and yet it's still somehow alive in the way books are. Mm. And I think that's one of the the um, really compelling things about about the word and written language that it can outlive all of us and yet continue to communicate to mm. future generations. And paintings do the same thing. And I also wanted to convey the way people can fall in love with each other through art, through a, a sort of shared love or shared obsession or shared medium. So there are a lot of scenes in this book in which people um, are literally painting together. They're standing together in a landscape and painting and helping one another with their canvases or commenting on one 
one another's work or just enjoying the companionship of mm-hmm. of work. The um, coast of Normandy or the, mm-hmm. the coast of Maine? Or the coast of Maine, <laughs> yeah. And there are a lot of, uh, of parallel stories in this book, which I, I think we also probably shouldn't give away. Okay, okay. I will follow your lead on that. <laughs> Definitely, Elizabeth. With with Beatrice, did you have, um, maybe when we come back, we'll take a short break. Maybe we can talk about the component, because a, a lot of what drives you is the, the curiosity and the research, it seems like, but then the imagination, because Beatrice is not, um, she seems like she has a place in history, but it's the history of Elizabeth Kostova. It's not the history of the French Impressionists, <laughs> right? So... Maybe yeah, she's, she is an invented character. So we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Elizabeth Kostova is here. Her latest, The Swan Thieves, will be back. From that peaceful interlude, I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers today, Elizabeth Kostova, and she is here. Her novel, The Swan Thieves, um, we had a chance to hear a little bit about it before, um, a little bit from it. Um, and now we're talking about um, some of the characters that go go through this, spanning the time and, and the importance of, um, I love the idea of making sure that you're blending the, the modern and the present with the past. I, I love that, Elizabeth. So, so Beatrice, going back to our, um, our, our heroine from the past, who, who um, seemed to be a brave young woman of her time uh, and painting and very talented, um, I, I, was, I thought she was, I thought she might have been someone, you know, you based her on someone who was from history. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the research involved in The Swan Thieves and how um, you use that to create, to, to imagine your, your story? Well, there are some real Impressionist painters, I mean, some painters who really loved, <laughs> who kind of walk on and off, um, at the the margins of this novel, but I and and they include Sisley and Monet, um, Edouard Manet and Berthe Morisot. Uh, Manet was a, really quite an impressionist painter, but he influenced them hugely. And um, they they all make little they make cameo appearances. But I I there's so much scholarship on the the real impressionists that I didn't want to take that on in this novel. And I also didn't want to be constrained by their real lives. And I wanted this to be a novel, um, although it's meticulously researched, it, it's really, truly about 
characters' internal lives, um, rather than, in in a sense, rather than about art history in a technical way. And I did a lot of research to make sure that everything that Beatrice de Clerval and her um, companion, her friend Olivier Vignot, an older painter in the story, everything they um, work on, experience, use as painting technique, um, that all those things were in the realm of possibility and and probability that they that they would be they arguably could have worked in these ways and in these places and with these techniques. So it is carefully researched, but and the salon, like you would, yes, you would enter go to a painting the Paris salon, yes. and and that process, I researched that process carefully as well. And um, so in the book, you you visit the the salon, the the great annual exhibition in in Paris, um, uh, and you you see them um, experiencing this huge spectacle of entertainment that people in Paris went to by the tens of thousands. And um, and so all of that is, is, is carefully researched, but I wanted them to be fictional because I wanted to have some freedom with the facts of their lives as well. Because that's, that's how you're creating the story that's weaving in like the, the genius, the artist that lives today and his obsession and... Um, Yes, and he, he, of course, is a fictional painter as well. But, but I interviewed, I was very, very fortunate with this book. Um, I know several painters well, and people who, who paint either as a, as a career or as a very strong vocation. Or, and they, they were very generous about letting me interview them, pester them, you know, ask them questions about how they worked, um, and, and also kind of let me in on their their techniques and their the the long series of decisions a painter makes in painting anything and i also um got to watch some studio classes at a very serious art league where i could see how an instructor worked with studio assignments exercises and how these these working painters um responded to them because as you know quite a bit of the book is is about learning and teaching and mentorship in in painting and so i wanted to make sure i had those things right too so yes the the contemporary painters um also their lives are also based on a lot of research but i i really wanted this to be a book about people's um people's internal lives, people's feelings about the artwork they did, um, people's reaction to paintings from the past. And I think in that way, it's, it's um, in spite of all the research, it is a more kind of general story or universal story. It's, it's a story, yes, about obsession, about love. Universal. Um gifts and complaints. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so you had mentioned, Elizabeth, too, that this this book, um, when we were off uh, taking a short break, that this book is very, um, when your method of writing this book, and, and I think you started to touch on it then, because you're imagining these characters, whereas the historian had a very, um, maybe you had the plot um, that you were working within uh, already. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the experience of writing the Swan Thieves, how your writing method was different? Yes, absolutely. Um, and it, it surprised me how, how different it, it was from one book to another. With The Historian, I was doing a lot of solving of logical puzzles because I, I had this mystery at the heart of it. And there is, there is a mystery in The Swan Thieves, too. Um, but with The Historian, I was really working out how a lot of different pieces of real history could fit together mm -hmm. to make this plot. And about halfway through, I, I worked out an outline that went almost to, really through the end of the novel, plotting a lot of those details. And and that was very helpful because I had I did have to work through this kind of puzzle. Although it was a deeply 
felt book for me. I still think about those characters, and they were very real to me while I was writing it. Um, but with The Swan Thieves, I actually was heavily influenced in it, in the process of writing the, the Swan Thieves by one of my MFA classmates, Karen Uten, who's a marvelous fiction writer. And she, uh, I went, I went by to see her one day while we were students together, and she, um, she had been writing, and I asked her what she was working on, and and um, she was working on a novel at that point, and she said, um, she told me she'd been working on it, and I said, oh, what chapter are you on? And she said, I don't know. And I was completely surprised by that. I actually, um, I had not understood that you were allowed to do that. And <laughs> and I was, and I began to ask her about her process, and she explained it to me, and I went on to use it in The Swan Thieves. And, and that's a process of knowing the, the general trajectory of a story, having a sort of general plot in mind or an arc of a story, but writing whatever material is, seems compelling or, or hot at that moment in your mind and for that session or over a period of weeks, but, but writing whatever seems urgent and real and and then going back later and piecing it together so that it makes the right kind of chronology. And sometimes as I edited, of course, I had to build bridges um, to link scenes together or I had to reorder things so that they really worked for me. But it's a wonderful way to write a book that has a strong psychological component or a strong um, component of of people's emotional lives because... It really focuses in this very intimate way on on characters and their interaction, and and on the act of imagination, and that was a, a powerful method for me for this book. And I would I would never have dared to do something so disorderly <laughs> while I was while I was writing the historian or in any of the work I did before this, but it somehow was just right as a method. I spent over a year editing and reordering and sort of rebuilding, stitching together the Swan Thieves after I'd written all the initial material. So it is a very long process to, to put um, scenes together in that way. And when when did you give um, the, the manuscript to the publisher, um, Elizabeth, because cause I was able to read from a galley like over Christmas, the, the Swan Thieves, um, but there were some changes um, in in the final, in the hardcover book. Um, so w- what was that like? Was, was there a sense of, um, I don't know, maybe a pressure of sorts that was maybe a, a good pressure, like, come on, Elizabeth, we want this, this second novel. Um, and, and did that drive the writing of it in some ways or the, your, your, or yeah. When, when, well, what's it, it was... like to give a manuscript up and then think <laughs> there's still some stitching to be done or some pieces that I, I know I'm not. Well, I think, I think every with. writer sees things here. She wants to change after giving up a manuscript at any <laughs> stage. I mean, there's that wonderful, um, that wonderful story about legend, um, uh, but I, I don't doubt it about Raymond Carver and how whenever he received the first printed copy of his work, he would go through and correct it with a red pen, and then he felt better and could put it on the shelf. And, and red that, was, pen. that was Raymond Carver. He was, you know, it's hard to imagine Raymond Carver correcting yeah. his own, you know, beautifully spare, perfect prose. How could there be a useless word? How could there word? be a red pen? You know, how would, why would you need a red pen at that point? But But I think that's a... That's a great story to keep in mind. Um, but I I had never written for a deadline before, and I wrote this, except some short work. I mean, I wrote The Swan Thieves under contract, so I, I had four years to write it. And, um, that, and I did have the pressure of finishing it at a particular time, which I didn't have with my first novel, as you can tell, because it took so long. So that was a good that was a good driving force. But we also brought out the galley pretty early, so there were still things I wanted to very much wanted to polish and do and and tighten up for the final the final um, printed book. And so you so you let it go. Um, but then, and you tell them though, there's, there's things like you're in communication with them saying, but there's going to be quite a few changes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's why the galley is also called an uncorrected proof because so much correcting goes on afterward. Was that the case with the historian too, then that you had? 
It That's... was. It was. Although I had worked on it for ten years and had, you know, I'd polished it on my own time, so it was almost to the point I, where I wanted it to be already in the galley stage. And this one was much more of a process, even after that. Well, well, after the Swan Thieves, then Elizabeth, are you then? Does it mean that you're on contract for another book? So again, that's a renewed sense of there's a, a time frame, or are you free, or what? <laughs> I'm I'm not under contract for another book yet, um, and I and that's still an unfolding question. But um, I expect that however I write the next book, I will write it in, in a shorter time again, probably in three or four years. And maybe is that because if you have, you can, you can set more time aside to actually devote to writing. You're not doing all these other things. And yes, that, that's true. I can, I can put more than 10 minutes a day into it. <laughs> Although I also am very busy with a lot of other responsibilities still. But, but it, it is very, yeah, no, it's very, very helpful. I feel fortunate to be able to do that. Well, let's take a short break and maybe we'll talk about some of your responsibilities. We'll end on a high note when we come back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel today. Elizabeth Kostova and we'll be back. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers today, Elizabeth Kostova. Um, Elizabeth, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And you're so you're going to be reading this evening um, at Nicola's, uh, 7 p.m. Westgate Mall, um, and you're in the middle of a tour for the Swan Thieves. So if you guys are streaming out there outside of Ann Arbor, um, Elizabeth will perhaps be coming to a town near you. So you can check out uh, these these tour stops at www.swanthieves.com and more about the novel there too. Um, and I'd like to say one more thank you to Brian Delaney for engineering. And uh, we've got the sports guys coming up. Uh, maybe Adam will be in, in the... Uh, the sports seat uh, today. I wanted to also say thank you to Sabrina Callahan um, for sending me the books over at Little Brown. She's great. I don't know if do you work with her directly. Yes, uh, I Elizabeth do, yeah. too. Yeah, she's been wonderful. All right, so let's talk about some of your your other um, your other things besides the writing. You you've also started a foundation um, for for writers both in America, Britain, and Bulgaria. Could you tell us more about the foundation, Elizabeth, and why you started it and what's happening with it? Well, it, it started because of the historian. When I went to Eastern Europe on tour, I found that I had a, a really touchingly big response there because it's very unusual for places like Bulgaria and Croatia, uh, Romania, to be featured in a Western novel. 
And a lot of writers came to my readings, um, particularly in Bulgaria. And I was really distressed to hear about the way they had the the circumstances under which they worked. Um, it's of course it's you know very hard to be a writer in almost any culture, and most people work very very hard um, to get published. I mean it's or or to just to have time to do their work. It's it's part of the trade. But in Bulgaria, I met writers who were working three jobs, driving a cab at night, and with really no hope of of winning a fellowship or um, an award or going to an MFA program because those things barely existed. So with the collapse of communism there, a lot of this, uh, although state censorship was mainly removed, a lot of the the structure of funding for the arts also collapsed 20 years ago, and not very much was replacing it. And the more I saw of, of Bulgarian writers who were trying to publish wonderful novels and short stories or uh, poetry, um, but were being edged out by waves of books in translation, mainly commercial novels and and um, commercial nonfiction from English, and um, and uh, and which really limits the local market there, and and also in Bulgaria, for example, there were only about four literary prizes, and three out of four were nomination only in the whole country. So I mean, here, yes, it's a struggle, but we ha- we can submit our chapbooks. We you know there are, there are thousands of prizes, fellowships, um, things to struggle for, and hope for, and. Um, and many, many, many MFA programs. Um, the workshop model of discussing writing barely existed there. So I decided that one thing I wanted to do with with the historian was to use some of the international royalties from the book to give back to Eastern Europe, which had provided me with so much sustenance and inspiration as a writer. And I started a foundation there, a small foundation that has since grown much larger um, through generous help from the American Embassy, from the EU, from other foundations. So it's grown into something much, much bigger than just me. Um, and it now offers prizes for translations, literary translation. It also hosts an international fiction seminar on the coast of the Black Sea in Bulgaria annually. And we've had several graduates of the MFA program here at the University of Michigan attend that. It's become very competitive. It's, it um, is, um, and we had about 100 applications last year for 10 fellowships. Um, and it's, it goes through a committee in Bulgarian and in English. So we, take, we usually have five Bulgarian workshop participants and five from the English-speaking world, the English-writing world, um, not only the U.S. And um, it's a wonderful opportunity, I think, for writers from the West to go and experience a little-known destination and, and also to experience a very vibrant literary scene in a very different world. You know, Bulgaria has an incredible literary tradition, but it's a really small language and um, has a lot of great translators working there, too. So uh, some very interesting projects are already coming out of this seminar, um, collaborations between Bulgarian and American writers, translation projects, publications, um, and it's very, it's really very exciting to see this kind of cultural diplomacy in action. I'm, I'm very proud of what the writers there have accomplished and done to help one another. And um, I'll just add the our website, which is beautiful. And make sure you click on English if you don't read Bulgarian <laughs> um, in the upper right hand corner. The web address is www.ekf for Elizabeth Kostova Foundation dot BG for Bulgaria. And I invite all all writers and we, we don't even um, have a criterion of publication. We the the juries look at 
writing samples and their quality. And we've had some extraordinary writers there, published and unpublished. And it's not necessary to know Bulgarian. As a, no, not right. at all. I should say that. <laughs> that would but, hugely limit our, our application or, pool in the West. <laughs> or everyone would have to start, you know, boning up on the Bulgarian. Right now, yes. right. Exactly. No, no, not at all necessary. In fact, we have an interpreter at the conference who, who helps um, anyone who needs to, needs help communicate with anyone else. And do you go, are you part of the conference? Because I know you have been in the past, Elizabeth. Is that something that you, yes, you continue I, to do? I do. I go annually and I teach the, or not teach, but lead and I'm, I'm the mediator for the the um, English workshop and a Bulgarian novelist, a different writer every year or short story writer. Um, very, We've had some really wonderful Bulgarian writers leading the Bulgarian equivalent workshop. Mm. And Elizabeth, do you also write, because you mentioned that there were other projects that you were working on. Are you, are you writing short stories right now or, or what? And because I imagine with the book tour and, and with everything, um, that what sort of writing are you having time to do at the moment? Or do you think your method is the novel? That's the way you're putting things together and to the, the written word. Well, I do work mostly on novels now and, um, I, but I recently wrote a short story for Michigan Anthology of Ghost Stories, and that's <laughs> been a lot of fun. Um, and I sometimes write some, I write short nonfiction um, essays or articles occasionally or do a little reviewing. But usually um, I'm, I'm working on a, a novel, and I started a new one, uh, my third novel, in November. And... Um, I'm trying to very slowly to begin the research for that because it will again involve a lot of historical research. And I keep hoping that someday I'll write a novel of 200 pages that will include almost no historical research, <laughs> but I don't seem to be capable of it so far. Well, maybe that could just be um, your idea of a short story if you just looked at that. 200 page short story, yes. I don't know, to give yourself some sort of, I don't know. It is interesting, though. I love that idea how um, just that thinking about, like, this is the way, this is the way I see the world. This is the way my mind works. Like taking those pieces of, of history. Of, of history. Well, um, yes, it's, it's um, I think writers have themes and ways of seeing seeing things that emerge over time. And, and in a way, it's it's exciting to see that one's subject matter sort of emerge. And in another way, it's a little sad. I mean, it's um, there's a feeling of limitation. Every mind is so limited. And, and in spite of the fact that we all use our imaginations uh, vigorously when we write novels. So I'm, I'm also realizing that probably there are certain kinds of novels I will never, I, I would never in a million years be able to write. And but at least I can read them. <laughs> that remains that remains a consolation. And your readers can go along with you on the ride that you're you're creating for them. Um, thank you, Elizabeth Kostova, for being here in the studio today. Um, Elizabeth's latest, the the Swan Thieves. Thanks again to Brian Delaney. Thanks for listening, Ann Arbor, streaming wherever you are out there. And until next time, I'm T Hetzel. to his right, throwing in the end zone for Arrington, caught, touchdown Michigan takes the snap, looking to throw the near side, now he's going to go far, over the middle, he's got a man, caught touchdown Michigan Adrian Arrington, wide open in the back of the end zone over the middle, and Michigan 
marches right down the field. No problem. They have the lead again. It's 37 to 35. Four wide receivers. T-bone in the shotgun. Moore lined up to his right. He's going to throw for it. Pressure coming. He's rolling to his left. Still looking, still looking. He's going, he's throwing down. He throws up a prayer. He's got a man, and it is incomplete. Michigan's going to win the 2008 Capital One Bowl as Lloyd Carr's last game as the University of Michigan head football coach. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN 88.3 FM, your home for Michigan sports. And good evening. Welcome to the Daily Sports Report. I am Bill Rothwell, your host in studio. We have a whole host of experts here in studio today, so I won't drop any names, but we are the best 15-minute show in the United States of America, probably the world. And so, I'm going to turn my mic on, by the way. Yeah, Mr. well, host. you know, this is my show, and so we, I'm hosting, so I need to look. You like, were just going to do all the right. talking for the, exactly. right there, the whole time. So. No, guys, but really, what, what the topic is today, and I think this is kind of what the people want, we always give the people what they want, right, is Michigan football today, National Signing Day for the University of Michigan. Overall, a lot of people would agree they had a decent showing. Guys, first of all, before we get into any details on any of the players, just your overall impressions, and are you glad with where Michigan's at at this point? Oh, I mean, I'm very pleased, I'd say, with the uh, recruiting class. Yeah, it's not the flashiest. They didn't make the biggest splashes um, in terms of the star rankings on sites like Rivals and Scout, but I think overall a very, very solid class. They filled some positions of need with some star players like Devin Gardner and Marvin Robinson and then you just got some very solid three-star players who are going to go a long way to fixing depth issues on defense guys like Josh Furman and uh, you know a lot of secondary prospects including the big one today DeMar Dorsey so overall very pleased yeah and um, I'm also very pleased with this class and towards the beginning of the recruiting we were very offense heavy and what we were looking for, bringing in a lot of receivers, and um, we really uh, stepped it up on the defensive front towards the end of the recruiting, bringing in guys like Furman and Dorsey, like Andy said, and also guys like uh, Carvin Johnson, who people, I guess, missed 